Welcome to Season 2 of Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers with co-hosts, New York Times best-selling authors and renowned investigative journalists, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. In this episode, Part 2 of Animal, The Rise and Fall of the Mob's Most Feared Assassin, chronicled in Casey's classic true crime novel. Before there was Whitey Bulger, there was Joe the Animal Barboza. Casey and Dave give you the inside story of the first man ever placed into the Witness Protection Program and one of the most important organized crime cases in American history. And now, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. Joe Barboza had already established himself as the most dangerous killer in the Boston mob, and now he had a partner in crime, Vincent Jimmy the Bear Flemmy, brother of Stephen the Rifleman Flemmy. The siblings were sadistic killers, and both had recently sold their souls to the FBI as top echelon informants. Of course, Barboza didn't know this when he and the Bear met with Raymond Patriarca, godfather of the New England Mafia. Barboza and Flemmy wanted to kill a local wise guy named Teddy Deegan, but first they needed to get approval from Patriarca. Underboss Henry Tomelio made the formal introduction. This is Joe Barboza, he told Patriarca. Joe extended his hand. My pleasure, Mr. Patriarca. Call me Raymond. Barboza examined Patriarca closely. This was, without question, the most powerful man he'd ever met. Joe was a student of mob history and had followed Patriarca's rise to power. Now he was studying the Mafia Don's features, and he was taken aback at how sickly he appeared. Patriarca had deep bags under his eyes. His mouth was a black hole of rotted teeth and purple gums. If this was the face of power, Barboza briefly questioned whether attaining such power was worth it in the end. But men like Barboza could hardly understand the amount of stress that Patriarca felt every moment of every day. He was the CEO of a large corporation where a rough fourth quarter could land you in prison or on a slab in the morgue. Patriarca also knew that the FBI was gunning for him, but he didn't know that the feds had planted a gypsy wire in his office. Bobby Kennedy was no longer the top lawman in America after having both his power and commitment to public service briefly rocked by the assassination of his brother JFK in Dallas. But Bobby Kennedy had laid the groundwork in the war against Raymond Patriarca and other mafia leaders. The torch had now been passed to young federal agents like H. Paul Rico and Dennis Condon in the Boston office of the FBI, who were willing to bend any rule and break any law in the U.S. government's campaign to destroy the mob. During their meeting with Patriarca, Flemmy explained why and how they planned to kill Teddy Deegan. The bear did all the talking while the animal stayed mostly silent. Afterward, Flemmy huddled with Barboza. You didn't have much to say in there. What were you thinking? Barboza smiled at his psychotic friend. I was thinking how I could bite Patriarca's finger off and get his big diamond ring. Raymond Patriarca refused to okay the hit, but the animal and the bear would not be denied. When they returned to Boston, they got word to Teddy Deegan that the Lincoln National Bank in Chelsea was the prime target for a big score. 
On Friday night, March 12, 1965, Deegan was picked up at the Ebtide Lounge for his date with Mob Destiny. The animal had strategically mapped out the hit on Teddy Deegan with the forethought of a field general. He'd used two cars for the job, one to block traffic and another to make a hasty retreat from the scene. Neither vehicle was known to police. Unlike Barboza's own Oldsmobile Cutlass, which was dubbed the James Bond car by local cops because it was equipped with a high-tech alarm system and a mechanism that spewed thick black smoke from the tailpipe. Barboza ordered one of his men to take one car and park it around the corner from the Lincoln National Bank. He had the vehicle in position to make a hard right and stall in the middle of the street, which would block Chelsea police from responding to the scene. Barboza had the other car parked down the street with its wheels turned out, ready to make a quick getaway. He then handed out guns, bulletproof vests, and disguises to the hit squad. Teddy Deegan was armed only with a screwdriver. Deegan was driven to the bank and led down a dark alleyway. The animal entered the alleyway wearing a dark coat and holding a 357 Magnum in his left hand. Teddy Deegan was shot in the back of the head and dropped at the back door of the bank. Barboza saw that he was dead, but he put another bullet in Deegan's brain for good measure. A week later, James Handley, the special agent in charge of the Boston office, advised J. Edgar Hoover that Barboza and Flemmy were responsible for the murder of Teddy Deegan. When word of the hit reached Raymond Patriarca, he hit the roof. The Deegan murder was not good for business, and Barboza, along with Flemmy, had violated the boss's order. The animal knew that Patriarca wielded tremendous power, and he knew that he was in trouble. In this rare interview, Barboza explains how far Patriarca's tentacles reached across New England and why it would be foolish to hide. Imagine, like, Raymond sits in Rhode Island. This ashtray is Rhode Island. And this is, that's the middle of a wheel. And all these folks run out, lions of them, into, into Worcester, into Springfield, into Boston, and, and all these different uh, uh, cities and suburban towns. Now, when that, the Lionsville, he has an office there, the main office in each town or city. Now, in that main office, there might be 25 charter clubs or bars, more than that, in, in that city, that all turn back to that main office. Now, the main office sends somebody back towards Raymond, and at a certain point, not directly to Raymond, but to somebody Raymond trusts just outside of Rhode Island, picks up that money and, and brings it to Raymond, and you got all these people, you know, you understand what is developing from the, this main artery that thousands and thousands of people that he controls and we have bookmakers and so forth and, and uh, the runners and so forth and pickup men. With Teddy Deegan on a slab and Patriarch in a fury, the New England Mafia decided it was time to get rid of Joe the Animal Barboza. But the only way to do that was to cage him or kill him. No one volunteered to take Barboza out. 
The mobsters knew that it would be a suicide mission to go after Barboza, so they set him up for an arrest instead. It was a bullshit weapons charge, and the cop that busted Barboza was on the mob's payroll. With the animal behind bars, the local district attorney announced that authorities had finally captured the biggest killer in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Barboza had been arrested many times before, so he didn't sweat it. He just sat in his jail cell, waiting for Patriarch's men to bail him out. That's how it always worked with wise guys. They were worth more to La Cosa Nostra if they were out earning on the streets instead of rotting in some dank jail cell. Barboza was held at the notorious Charles Street Jail, which had once been home to Sacco and Vanzetti, Malcolm X, and a Nazi U-boat commander who had committed suicide in prison by cutting his veins with broken pieces of his eyeglasses. Raymond Patriarca had no intention of bailing Barboza out of jail. Instead, he sent order to kill every member of Joe's crew. Soon, the streets of Boston were flowing with blood once more. Two of Barboza's men were lured into the Nightlight Cafe, a mob-controlled joint in Boston's Italian North End. They were promised cash to bail out Barboza. Instead, knives were pulled and guns were drawn. The victims were beaten, stabbed, and shot in their skulls. Their bodies were stuffed into the trunk of a Cadillac, which was left in a vacant lot in South Boston. The Mafia had chosen Southie in an attempt to blame the murder on the Irish. Barboza went ballistic when he heard of the massacre. He devised a plan to break out of jail and kill everyone in sight. But Patriarca had now mobilized more than a dozen contract killers to blow Barboza away, should he find himself back on the streets. The animal was now trapped. In came the FBI. FBI agent H. Paul Rico wanted to bring down the mob, and he saw Barboza as his key to success. Tell the FBI to go fuck themselves, Barboza said at first. But soon, Rico convinced the animal to rat on the mafia, which was something Barboza had sworn that he'd never do. But the mob had painted the animal into a corner, and it was now kill or be killed. Barboza wanted to strangle Raymond Patriarca with his bare hands, the only way to do that was to get the mob boss in prison, where it would be mano a mano. Patriarca had already murdered Barboza's friends. Now the animal was afraid for his family, his wife Claire and his young daughter Stacy. Barboza wrote a letter to Patriarca, citing his reasons for turning the tables against the mob. He never sent the letter, but he did read it aloud in this rare interview. Once again, this is the animal in his own words. They killed Tash and Tommy DePrisco in the nightlight. They took off their person's money totaling over $70,000, which belonged to me and the guys at the bail. Killed Chico on December 7th, 1966. Raymond sent word to me that if I go to his office and straighten it out, then nothing would happen to my wife and child. They did plot and try to kill my wife and child. The office tried to kill my brother. They tried to kill my wife's cousin, Sid. They turned journey of mine against me and he was opening letters I was sneaking out through him and letting them read them. The office spread the rumor that they were mad at me for shaking certain people in nightclubs down. Even though I never moved on any club or person until the office gave me the okay, I only answered to Raymond and his emissary. At first he used to reach me 
the informant in Canary Bay. It doesn't reach me anymore because I have a purpose in life. I have only one purpose, and that is uh, the best way I can put it is uh, to get a little peace of mind. When the feds met with Barboza behind bars, he told them, if I ever testify for you guys, you'd have to find me an island and make a fortress out of it. And that's exactly what the FBI did. The feds chose Thatcher Island, an unforgiving pile of jagged rock covered by seagrass and poison ivy about a mile off scenic Rockport, Massachusetts. The island was crawling with rats and snakes that had been cultivated to ward off intruders. Barboza was kept there with his wife and child under 24-hour protection from the U.S. Marshal Service. The deep, hollow sound of the foghorn, sounding twice every 60 seconds, rang incessantly in Barboza's brain. For him, the isolation of this island was hell on earth. FBI agents H. Paul Rico and Dennis Condon visited the island about every day, preparing Barboza for his testimony against not only Patriarca, but all the mafia leaders and associates in Boston, including underbosses Henry Tamelio and Jerry Angiulo. The feds had a plan. They would use Barboza to blame his gangland rivals for the murder of Teddy Deegan a murder that the animal had orchestrated himself. Barboza's secret location was soon revealed in a newspaper article printed under the headline, How to Hide a 250-Pound Canary. John Partington, the head of the U.S. Marshal Unit assigned to protect Barboza, quickly got word that Raymond Patriarca had assembled an assassination squad to silence the animal once and for all. Go up there and case the island, Patriarca told two of his mafia soldiers, Pro Learner and Fat Vinnie Teresa. They took a 43-foot cruiser called the Living End into Boston Harbor, heading north toward Rockport. Pro Learner was a well-known mob assassin. He'd even packed a wetsuit in the hopes of infiltrating the island, James Bond style, to take out Barboza up close and personal. The assassins had high-powered rifles and shotguns at the ready. They motored the vessel through the rough waters and thick fog toward Thatcher Island. The perilous seas surrounding the island were littered with skeletons of ships that had gone down over the centuries. Soon they saw the twin lights from two lighthouses on the island and knew they were close. U.S. Marshal John Partington had received a tip that the killers were coming their way and that they had 600 pounds of dynamite on board with the intention of blowing up everything on the island. Partington gathered 12 deputies and lined them up in full view of the oncoming vessel. Each was armed with a carbine rifle and bad intentions for the Mafia assassins. Partington also had Barboza wear a U.S. Marshal's uniform in an effort to confuse the killers. The show of force combined with rough seas gave the assassins second thoughts. They fired a couple shots toward the island but never got close to Barboza or his family. After the botched hit, Raymond Patriarca was ready to buy the animal's silence. Word got to Barboza that he'd get paid 75 grand if he refused to testify against the boss and the underboss. Barboza spit on the offer. Tell Raymond to go fuck his mother in the mouth, he said. 
Once the Thatcher Island location was exposed, John Partington moved Barboza and his family to the mainland. This time, they secured a sprawling estate in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Barboza soon learned that the mob had hired New York mafia killer Crazy Joe Gallo to drive up to Massachusetts and kill Barboza and possibly his family. Barboza managed to sneak a phone call to Gallo's New York headquarters. It's the animal, he snarled over the phone. I just want you to remember one fucking thing. The distance from New York to Boston is the same distance from Boston to New York. Barboza threatened Crazy Joe Gallo that he'd break out of his protective detail, drive up to New York, and cut his fucking head off. When it came time for Barboza to testify at the first of three mob trials, John Partington was tipped off that the mafia would have snipers covering all four doors of the Suffolk County Superior Courthouse in Boston. The journey from Gloucester to Boston was as tightly controlled as a presidential motorcade. A lead car was deployed miles ahead to look for any potential mafia roadblocks and to scout sniper locations on bridges and along roadways. Barboza slipped into the court building at 2 a.m. on the first day of the first mob trial in January 1968. He was surrounded by 20 members of his security detail, each man wearing hoods with slits for eyes, as Partington wanted to make sure that Barboza could not be recognized by potential assassins. The next day, he was brought to Boston on a fishing boat that docked on an isolated pier. From there, Barboza traveled in the back of a U.S. postal truck to the courthouse, where he was escorted inside the building in a cart under a pile of mail. On the stand, Barboza implicated Jerry and Julo in two other gangsters in the murder of a hood named Rocco de Seglio. Unfortunately, the state's entire case rested on Barboza's testimony and the mobsters were found not guilty. Now, this was a huge blow to the animal and to the FBI. If Joe Barboza's fragile mind wasn't shattered yet, it soon would be. He slipped into a depression after the Angelo trial. The FBI tried to keep his spirits up, saying that he had performed well and that the trial was the weakest of the three. FBI agent H. Paul Rico felt that Barboza needed more inspiration, more hatred against the Mafia. Rico heard that Patriarca was now targeting Barboza's lawyer, John Fitzgerald. Rico didn't mention this to the 36-year-old defense attorney. Instead, he was happy to let the drama play out. Fitzgerald left his office in Everett, Massachusetts on the night of January 30, 1968. It was spitting snow and rain. He walked across the street to a payphone and made several calls, including one to Paul Rico. He walked into a vacant lot where he had parked his car. Fitzgerald was now driving around in Barboza's tricked-out James Bond car. The lawyer was successful and he was drawn to the action. He'd been living his life vicariously through clients like Barboza, but somewhere along the way, Fitzgerald had morphed into a gangster himself. He carried two loaded pistols, had a slew of mistresses, and now he had Barboza's car, a black and gold Oldsmobile. 
Fitzgerald got into the vehicle and placed his briefcase next to him in the passenger seat. He put the key into the ignition and turned it. The car erupted into a fireball, thanks to two big sticks of dynamite that were hidden under the hood. The blast launched the hood several feet in the air while propelling the hubcaps out hundreds of feet in both directions. The windshield exploded into hundreds of tiny pieces as glass tore into the mob lawyer's face and jaw. Two nearby power lines were snapped by flying debris and the impact also cracked the windows of nearby apartment houses. The explosion hurled Fitzgerald out of the car and onto the pavement. His clothes were on fire, his flesh was burning, and it appeared that portions of the car's seat cover were now molded to his body. The street resembled a war zone, as flames and smoke blanketed the area. Lying spread out on the asphalt, with his right leg nearly ripped from his body, the lawyer begged for assistance from the gathering crowd. Help! Help! He muttered. Get me the FBI! Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers is a joint production of Mudhouse Media and Fort Point Media. Produced and edited by Mike Joshua. Studio space provided by WorkLocalMA.com. Original music by Chris Spagone. For more from the Mudhouse Media Podcast Network, visit mudhousemedia.com. And for the latest on their podcasts and all of the writing and film projects of Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge, visit fortpointmedia.com. <laughs>